and I went on to buy two more in pretty quick succession because I just kept going to the bank and I kept they kept saying yes and so I found a house and I bought it and so I bought four and they were all terrible deals they didn't make any money I didn't know how to calculate cash flow they were all losers and I didn't understand what I was doing wrong and then when I went to go buy my fifth house the bank said no sir you have too many mortgages and I said what do you mean I didn't know that was the thing I didn't know you couldn't keep going and buying I would have bought a hundred Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. Today we have a very interesting interview with David Haberfeld. As a teenager, David thought that making $20 an hour as a waiter was the pinnacle of career success, but his ambition and entrepreneurial spirit led him from flipping cars to real estate investing to now owning 50 investment properties, a car dealership, and a property management company. In his youthful enthusiasm, he didn't understand the need for a mentor, so he learned many lessons the hard way and shares that learning so that others can learn from his story. Let's hear the fascinating story of David Haberfeld. So I have here with me David Haberfeld. And David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Doing great. So David, I know you have your your, uh, finger in a number of different pies. So share with me a few of the different uh, businesses you're involved with. Sure. So um, I'm primarily a real estate guy. Uh, I'm an investor. Um, I'm a landlord. I rent out units. I renovate and flip houses. Uh, I have a short-term rental Airbnb near the casinos in Connecticut, which is currently sucking wind, but it was a great business model before, and I think it will return. Uh, I also own a car dealership in Bristol called Automotive Plus. And uh, I guess the last thing to mention is I've done some land banking in Arizona near uh, Bill Gates' uh, large uh, land purchase down there. What is land banking? Uh, land banking. So I'm, I'm purchasing land, vacant land. It's actually desert over there. Uh, under the assumption that it'll go up in value in the future, just holding on to okay. it. So it's kind of, I guess, is speculating another word for that? Or is that like a... It is absolutely no. speculating, yes. Okay. But banking just the more uh, more appealing sounding word? Yeah, land land speculating. That is also okay. fair to say, I think. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people hear that and like, okay, yeah, he owns a bunch of property and a car dealership and la-di-da. I'm sure he uh, inherited money or won the lottery and because, you know, you got to be rich to get rich. Um, so, so uh, could you talk a little bit about how you how you started? Um, sure. So, my background. I used to, you know, I started out my adult life uh, waiting tables. When I was when I was a kid, waiting tables, I could make like twenty bucks an hour on a good night. This is in the probably the late nineties, very late nineties, yeah. and uh, it was the best money uh, I could imagine myself making, and I wanted to do it forever. And I eventually got convinced by a friend to go to school to, uh, for IT to be a you know computer technician. I ended up mm-hmm. doing help desk stuff, and I did that for a bunch of years, and it was a good job. And um, I was like, I love this. I think I'm going to do this forever. And along the way, I was I was uh, flipping cars. I was um, you know just buying a car here, selling a car there. My first one was by accident. Um, I actually bought a manual car, and I couldn't figure out how to drive it. So I sold it, but I sold it at a profit because I was anticipating having to negotiate. And the guy offered me full price and I made money and I was like, well, that wasn't so bad. So um, I was I was flipping cars. And then while I was working in the IT field, um, my mechanic, he, uh, the, he was renting a bay from a dealership and the dealership was about to go under. And he asked me if I would partner with him and buy this dealership. And um, you know, I don't even I didn't even know what the words due diligence meant, but I didn't do any. And I just said yes. 
and um, I owned a car dealership. And it was an extremely tough learning curve. And around the same time, um, I started looking into real estate. Um, I guess you could say I just, you know, I was just looking all over the place. I kind of lacked focus, I guess. Um, so I still had the job. And it was 2006 at that time. And real estate. Are you still working IT then? I'm still working IT, full-time job. So I'm, I'm full-time at the dealership and I'm full-time at the IT place. So I'm putting in about 40 hours a week at each one. Um, so I was just working and that's all I was doing. Um, and so I started looking into real estate and um, we had just had a huge run up. You know, um, a lot of the newer guys were too young to remember, but, you know, 2003, four, five, six was a, a massive run up in real estate. And, you know, I didn't know what to do about it but it interested me. And I had a, uh, an old friend from college or from high school who went away to college. We kind of lost touch, reconnected on MySpace, if you remember what that is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we met at the bar for drinks. And it turned out we had the same idea. We're like, hey, we should buy rental properties because we're, you know, we watched all this real estate and everyone's doing good in it. Uh, we should each own a three family house and we'll be partners and he can live in one and I'll live in the other one. And we'll have half the risk and half the reward. And that was our idea while we were having beers at the bar. And it was kind of like a bar napkin deal. And uh, we followed through with it. We did it. And um, actually, as I speak right now, I am actually sitting in mine still from 2007. I think we ended up buying oh, nice. it in 07. Um, it's been a long road with that one. So it's not, uh, it's not all a rosy story. But um, we followed through with it. And we bought two, three families. And he lived in one and I lived in the other. And, you know, followed through with it. And that's how I got started. And and what, what kind of what kind of money did you need to get started with that? Is there some kind of down payment involved, or you needed absolutely nothing? So back then, um, you you know, I had a good job and I had a good credit. I had no idea what credit was. I didn't know my credit score. But when I went mm -hmm. to apply, they said my credit was good. It was like a seven twenty because I paid my bills and I didn't have any real debt. And so I was approved for a mortgage. And you could get one hundred percent loans back then. You can get eighty twenty loans, which is when. They say you need 20% down, but they're just kidding. And they give you a loan for the 20% also. <laughs> and so I was able to buy my first four houses actually with no money down. I actually got more money back from the closing than I did, than I put down if you tally them all together. So and... those, days, those days are actually not that far gone. They're a little gone, but they're not, they're not all the way gone. So, so it was more about you saw an opportunity, you seized it, not so, because I definitely missed the part in that story where you inherited a lot of money or someone handed you a lot of money to start with. No. So the only inherited part there that I can claim is that I inherited the knowledge that paying your bills is good. And so mm. that the credit, which allowed me to get a loan. That is a valuable inheritance. Yes, it is. Not everybody gets that inheritance. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so then you owned, so you basically bought houses and then bought more houses and more properties. Sure. So I, I bought four that way with mortgages. So my, my partner and I did two together, the two we said. And we, we are still great friends, but we actually never did another deal together, just those two. Um, and I went on to buy two more in pretty quick succession because I just kept going to the bank and I kept they kept saying yes. And so I found a house and I bought it. Um, and so I bought four and they were all terrible deals. They didn't make mm -hmm. any money. I didn't know how to calculate <laughs> cash flow. Um, they were all losers and I didn't understand what I was doing wrong. Um, and then when I went to go buy my fifth house, the bank said, no, sir, you have too many mortgages. And I said, what do you mean? I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know you couldn't keep going and buying. I would have bought 100. Um, I didn't know. <laughs> no one told me. Um, 
it seems really silly now in the age of Facebook because all this information is just so readily available and you can ask anyone anything, but we didn't have this back then. And I didn't think to seek out a mentor. It never occurred to me to find someone doing it, what I wanted to do and learn from them. And it's probably one of my bigger regrets in life is that I did not seek out a mentor. I just didn't think of it. And this is still before 2008? Yeah, this is uh, 2006 and seven is when I bought my first four houses and then they said okay. no. Yep. Yeah, there wasn't even Twitter back then. Yeah, it was uh, MySpace, and I don't know. I didn't use MySpace for business, I don't think. that was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, you didn't have a band, so. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so, so you said the bank uh, the, the bank said you have too many mortgages. Yeah, the bank said I had too many. Um, and I was like, well, I want another house. And the bank's like, well, I'm sorry, sir. We can't help you. Or you No, I think they said you needed 25% down. Or if, I think it was similar to that back then. I don't remember exactly. Um. And I'm like, 25% down. I didn't have to put any money down on the last four. And I don't have any money. I'm broke. I was putting money into the houses that I bought. So I was about, you know, 100% short of whatever they needed. Um, you know, I had a few bucks in the bank, you know. but um, And so it was actually my girlfriend at the time, her stepfather had this one-bedroom condo in the hood in Waterbury that he wanted to sell. And, you know, I was up for anything because I was super hungry. And um, he wanted $25,000 for it. And I'm like, oh, my God, $25,000. That's the cheapest house in the whole world. That's like a free house. Um, at the time, I didn't realize it, but I was overpaying. Um, it sounds like Waterbury, though. Yep, it was, it was a tough neighborhood. So I didn't have $25,000. And so I didn't even know what the word seller financing meant. I had never heard them before. I made this up without, any, without hearing it anywhere else first. And I said, well... I can put together $10,000. Can I pay you 5,000 a year for the next three years? And he said, yeah, yeah, okay. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, and then he's like, but I want interest. And I'm like, oh no, you know, what, what, do, we, what do you want for interest? And he said, eh, you know, I want in, like the inflation rate. I want 3%. And back then interest was around 7%. And so I'm like 3%, that's like free. So I quickly signed on. And I bought my fifth house, which was a one-bedroom condo. I ended up selling it four years later. And after all of the evictions and all of the remodeling, all the multiple times, I even had a refrigerator stolen out of there one time. <laughs> I, uh, I ended up making $12,000 over four years. So it was I made $3,000 a year, which I would probably translate into, you know, I probably made like five bucks an hour for my efforts. So is that three thousand? So you sold it for about what you bought it for? I sold it for twelve thousand more after everything. So all of my oh, okay. rent, all of my rent was eclipsed by, you know, losses. Uh, you know, evicting people while I was still paying taxes and insurance, and you know, but I was up twelve thousand at the end. So I guess you can call it a success, but in hindsight, I would consider it a failure. Learning experience. Yes. Sometimes I win. Sometimes I learn. Mm-hmm. And so, so then. Uh... Then, then, then what happened from there? Um, so this is closer to the part where you're like, I inherit a bunch of money. So I go to get a sixth house and I'm trying to figure out how to get it. And I'm like, you know what I need? I need a cosigner because I couldn't get a loan still. And I found a, I found a three family in Bristol that was still way overpriced. But we're, we're starting to get into the dark times here. But I, I'm still super hungry. I want more. And it was the beginning of short sales. So. Um, some of you guys listening will remember that in the beginning, banks were not ready for the wave of short sales. So this house was listed. I make an offer. 
And it was six months before they responded and counteroffered me. And I asked my father to co-sign on this loan if I got it. And my father was, he was fairly, he's a fairly negative guy, um, just always has been. And he said, you know, David, I don't know. I mean, you, you have, you do have five buildings and, you know, they seem to be going okay, but I saw one and, you know, you need to put more money into landscaping. Are you sure this is a good idea? You know, and he ended up, he was very pessimistic about it, but he just said he would co-sign for me anyway. So um, I counteroffer their six month counteroffer to me. And like three months later, I just give up. So I was after it for nine months and I didn't get anywhere. But now that I knew my, my father would co-sign for me, I was shopping for something else. And I found something. I found it. And it was actually a, um, I figured out that because I am getting a commercial loan, like an investment loan, I'm not limited to just one, two, three, or four families. I could go as high as I wanted. And this is before apartment buildings were super hot. So I found a 10-unit building. Um, I found it on Craigslist, actually. And, um, you know, I wanted it. And it was in a rough neighborhood, and it was in tough shape. But, you know, uh, again, due diligence, still didn't know what that word meant. That was 2008. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was $380,000. And so I said, all right, dad, this is the one, you know, let's go to the bank. And so my dad says, oh, you, you know, I don't think I'm going to co-sign for you. You know, I don't want you to pay all that interest. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I think I'll, I'll just loan you the money. And I'm like, oh my God, dad, you have money like that? Like he never told me. So he, <laughs> he he's a stock guy. So he had money in stocks. And he lent me the money at 7% interest. And I actually still have this loan today. I've been paying him 7% for 12 years. Um, I should probably try to uh, refinance that with him and have a little conversation. But it was, uh, it was, he was there for me when I needed him. And um, mm -hmm. that allowed me to buy my sixth property. And he, he actually lent me the money for my sixth and seventh, uh, 10 family and a two family. And that's how I got to seven and eight. <clears throat> Um, so that's as close as I get to my father giving me a huge inheritance. Uh, he did give me a loan um, okay. after, after I got the first five under my belt on my own. Mm -hmm. Although it sounds like if he if he pulled his money out of the stock market in two thousand seven, that didn't go too bad for him either. Yeah, I probably I probably helped him right when mm -hmm. the stocks go down. Stocks went down shortly after that, right? Oh wait. <clears throat> yeah, so I think I did. You know, that was lucky timing. Probably yeah. helped. So. Um, and honestly, from there, I'm trying to remember how it went from there after. Oh, I do remember what happened after that, actually. So I joined a group called BNI. Are you familiar with BNI? I'm in BNI. Oh, you are? Okay. Mystic. Yeah, I'm in Mystic right. BNI, the visitor host down here. I am a, I am a 10-year member of the Bristol BNI. And nice. um, in there was a man named Martin Toby, and he was the mentor at the time. And so we had our first one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting, and we were talking, getting to know each other. And he was also a landlord. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to seem amazing to tell you this, but this is my, I owned six at the time. This is before my seventh and eighth, my sixth house. And I had never spoken to another landlord before, ever. Wow. About anything. I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me. I come from a very traditional family where you, you know, go to school, get a job, and you go to work. Like there's, there wasn't any entrepreneurship in my family. And I, it just never even occurred to me to go and speak to anyone. So it almost makes me jealous of everyone starting out today because if I had that knowledge when I started that there was a there was an internet full of people willing to share and help each other, um, 
I wonder where I'd be some days, you know, I would probably be in pretty good shape. Not that I'm not, but farther along. Um, so Martin Toby says, have you ever heard of CTRIA, Connecticut Real Estate Investors Association? And I said, no, what's that? And so he's like, you have six properties and you've never heard of them. So he invites me to go down and um, CTRIA is actually one of the larger uh, real estate investor associations in the country. It just happens to be here in Connecticut. And uh, I went down there and my mind was blown. There were there was a room full of people that knew how to do what I wanted to do or wanted to do what I started to do. Uh, contractors and insurance and, you know, lenders and hard money lenders and, you know, everyone you could want in real estate was there. And a woman was speaking that night named Robin Thompson. Uh, are you familiar with that name? I'm, I'm not. Uh, Robin Thompson was a rehabber in Waterbury uh, for years. Um, and she rehabbed, um, I, I don't know what the number was, but I, I think it's an excess of 400 houses in her career. And she became one of those gurus that teaches and offers classes and stuff. And um, she was the most amazing speaker I've seen in my whole life. Like my, my life was changed. And she just gave away so much good information. Um, I was still of the mindset where, no, you can't sell me. So I didn't sign up for a course at the time. Um, but I was just so impressed with what she had already taught me. She had already you know, done so much for me just in the hour and a half that she was speaking, trying to sell me stuff. Um, and so I, I actually did end up taking her course and signing up and becoming a student about two years later. Um, but that is that is what opened my eyes to the rest of the real estate world was CT Rhea and Robin Thompson. And um, I got to say, like people that are starting out today, you're you're there. Like that's where you get to start. You get to start where I was after I had my first six and I was losing money on five of the four of the six. <laughs> um, and so I uh, again, like it's just uh, sometimes I think back, like, where would I be if I had started with CT Rhea and Robin Thompson and then bought my first house? And it's hard to, uh, you know, you can't dwell on it because it'll make you mad, right? Yep. Of course, you never know if you've had if you had the internet, you might have talked to someone who talked you out of it and said, "Hey, you should try this uh, this Bitcoin thing instead." Yeah, <laughs> uh, man, what I wouldn't do to put a couple bucks into bitcoins when they were fractions of a penny. Yes, that that was the time to get into it. Not not when yeah. they were up to fourteen thousand dollars. Yeah, and then fell that. from there. Yep. So so how did you get through? So obviously, the 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 market took a a bit of a shift in two thousand eight when you were holding six houses it did so my my 10 unit was i stabilized it took a while um that was where i learned about uh drug dealers and mm -hmm. drug addicts that's that property and the condo was still on its way out but the first four um that i had bought with the partners uh, my partner on one and i had two others um they ended up in uh one foreclosure two short sales and one modification um uh, destroying my credit um i eventually realized that i could not hold on um, they lost money every month. Like my entire salary of my 40 hour a week job probably went to those houses, um, because I didn't know how to do the math. And mm -hmm. so I, I lost, I lost most of those. Um, I did get back the one I modified and then one I ended up getting back the one I'm sitting in. So, but that killed my credit for many years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, that was the end of the, uh, bank lending to David until actually, uh, until, uh, last year, actually, 2019, wow. first time I got a loan. And so how were you able to keep 
keep, I assume you, you stayed in real estate after that. I did. So um, just to give you an idea of size, um, today I have 43 uh, properties with houses on them, and I have seven in Arizona, which is the desert land. So I have, I have 50 properties total exactly. Um, and 43 with, you know, with property on where they make rent on home or their flips. My flips are included in there. Okay. Um, and the way to grow, the way to grow beyond banks um, is private lending. Um, private lending. And of course, you can hook up with partners and there's other ways to do it. My way was private lending. And it's, it's just asking people that you know um, to lend you money. And your biggest enemy is the stock market because people that have money tend to be in stocks, most of them. And you got to find someone who doesn't like stocks and is willing to take a chance on you. And you'll get told, told no a lot. And people will ask, you know, why should I lend money into your harebrained real estate scheme? You know, and you got to have an answer for that. And um, private money, I've probably raised, um, I'm probably around like $3 million. Mm-hmm. So that's allowed me to um, purchase all sorts of other houses and rentals and stuff. Um, and I was just buying, never selling until like 2014. 2014 is when I learned that you can flip a house because before then I just didn't know how the, the real estate market was very poor by conventional standards. Um, so it was hard to find buyers for things, but the market just kind of flipped a switch in 2014 and we are still in that market, uh, mm-hmm. from 2014 to six to 2020, um, where houses sell pretty good for the last six years. Yep. I'm also hearing that, that during the, the COVID crisis, there, it's been a very much that that houses, good quality houses that are on the market are selling quickly because because there's buyers who are looking for them. So today, it's uh it almost defies logic. So the housing market has not dropped one penny. Um, houses are selling super fast. Some of it is, uh, some of it is that people pulled inventory off the market. Um, mm-hmm. You're a seller that doesn't want someone walking through your house because you're afraid of the virus. Or you think your house won't sell during the, you know, during the pandemic, uh, which which was a reasonable thing to think. <clears throat> but it turns out it's a mistake because the houses are selling. Um, this is probably the best time to sell your house since 2007, like right now in the last 13 years. Today is the best time to sell your house. Um, so if you are a flipper, you should be finishing up and getting it onto market. Um, but as I asked my flipper friends what they're doing. Most of them are sitting back because we all expect the market to drop. Not crazy like 2008 times, but there's a lot of downward pressures on the market. Um, everything from job loss to increased lending requirements. Um, and we, you know, we are afraid to assume that the value will hold in three to six months. That makes so sense. But, but, but if, if you're a flipper and you have a house, it's close to being ready to get to market, you'd want to push it to the market quickly to take advantage of the the short inventory now. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I, I was renovating five houses when the virus hit. Um, I finished three and we've got them to market and they've all done pretty well. And I have one that should be ready probably a month to go. And then one of them is a, is a rental. So it's a keeper. So um, everything is selling pretty good. I have one that I'm having a little issue with selling with only because it's in a, a harder market. But it's an excellent time to be selling your house. It's a tough time to be buying a house. If you're buying, mm-hmm. you can still get a loan, but your competition is fierce. Yeah. You know, you yeah, get hearing, uh, hearing stories about. I heard a story about a house that sold in three hours with eight bids. Yeah, you're getting you're getting outbid over and over again. And I 
I'm, I just cannot imagine this lasting. If you, you know, if I'm if I have a dollar to bet, I'm going to bet against this lasting very long. I think this is a short time in the market. Makes sense. Well, I'm sure, sure it's word gets around to sellers that who pulled their houses off the market that now is the time, and the houses are selling over over asking price. You know, get an RV and park it at the local RV park and uh, yes. put your house in the market. If you are if you're a realtor who had your clients, you know, pull their house off the market. I mean, you should be begging them to come back. And I imagine most of them are. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, all the realtors know what's up. All the realtors know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, it seems like the, the key thing to take advantage of is being being in there. It's interesting because in my business with publishing magazine, I talk to all kinds of business owners. And I, in the same half hour period, talked to two different realtors who worked out of the same office. And one was totally head down in the sand businesses stopped. I'm not doing anything. It's terrible. And the, you know, a few minutes later, I'm talking to someone who says, I just sold the house in three hours. I've never seen this before. <laughs> I feel bad for that guy who's got his head in the sand. Yep. Yeah. I, I think his head might still be in the sand like three months later. It's amazing. It's his own, uh, it's his own fault. Someone's got a, one of his coworkers got to nudge him. Yeah. Of course, I don't know how, cause he's not going in the office. He's probably not answering their calls. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, 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 you definitely got to put your pads on and get on the field if you want to play the game. Yeah, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe being a realtor is not for him. I hope he's it, not listening. It might be true. Yeah. Um, and so, how did you get into the the car dealership? Is that the one? So, cars is a good story. Cars is something that um, it's a way for me to diversify. So, I started out in cars before real estate, and I was just I was just flipping cars on the side, you know, out of my apartment. Um, and again, I did the first one by accident, and I liked it, so I kept going and. You know, I told you how I got my first dealership, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Partner with your uh... partner with my mechanic. mechanic um, yeah. And so I I only had that place for like a year. Um, and then I got into another dealership for a while and it lasted for a little while. But I've been out of I have not had a legitimate car dealership since 2009. So 10 years later, 2019, last year, I bought uh, Automotive Plus in Bristol. And the reason I bought it was because I wanted to diversify out of real estate. Um, I can see that the market has been high for a really long time and I expect it to downturn and I didn't foresee any virus or pandemic, but something makes the market downturn. I don't know what it was. I couldn't figure out the trigger, um, but nothing goes up forever. So used cars are a fairly recession proof business. Um, people still drive, people still want you know, used cars even more so when the economy is poor. Um, they still need their cars repaired. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, through a little bad luck, a pandemic does affect used car dealerships because people are driving a lot less, less repairs, less accidents, less car sales. Um, so I got a little unlucky there. Um, but, you know, we're, we're doing fine. The PPP money was very helpful for me. The mm -hmm. EIDL money, uh, we actually got denied for it for the car dealership, but we're reapplying and hopeful that they will I'm hopeful that we'll get to some. And I know that's a loan I got to pay back, but I'll take a good interest loan. It'll allow me to get through the tough times and to grow later. And I'll pay it back mm -hmm. as I go. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's just another business that allows me to, um, it allows me to not rely completely on flipping because my rental business is pretty decent. But flipping is my bread and butter these days. And in the last downturn, you couldn't flip. Um, you can't flip through a downturn. You can rent through a downturn, but flipping dried up completely last time. So again, if the next downturn looks like the last downturn, you know, flipping may be in tough shape. I got to say though, it does not appear to be slowing down. There's no indication that 
single family um, owner occupied houses are going to not be able to get loans this time, which is which is huge because last mm -hmm. time in 2008, 2009, um, if you were a single family, you know, you wanted to buy a single family to live in, um, banks just stopped lending money completely, which was really inappropriate to them. Um, they just didn't lend. And that's what killed the market after it was already over leveraged by everybody. Yeah, it, it seems like the Fed was very aggressive at making sure that didn't happen. Yeah, I think so too. I think they're they're they've learned a lot from the last downturn. They're yeah, and they they're going to make sure that people can still get loans. But if you increase the requirements, and there's a lot of people doing that now, where you have to have a higher credit score or more reserves, um, taking less risk, that does that is a downturn. That's what makes a downturn. Um, yeah. But it doesn't have to be nearly as bad as last time. It can be a lot less impactful. Um, the single number, the one, number one thing that makes for a good housing market, the number one thing above all else is easy loan products, easy and low interest low pro loan products. Makes and sense. there's no indication that um, interest is going to go, interest rates are going to rise. And as long as people can just keep getting loans like they can now um, for, again, owner occupant, um, single family flips, they're probably going to be okay. But Again, such massive job loss and increased requirements has still got to reduce some of the, it still has to reduce some of the demand. Yep. So how does flipping work? Because obviously it's buy low, sell high, sell high but how are you able to find, find bargains and then um, presumably you then sell it on the regular market to, to uh, homeowners. Um, but but how, how does that work and, and why does it not work during a recession or during a downturn? Sure. So the, I'll answer the last question first. Um, the reason that uh, flipping houses didn't work in the last recession is because there was no customers for your product. You couldn't get a loan at a bank in that 2009 sense, yeah. or 10. So there's no one to buy your house. So that's why it didn't work. Um, you know, these days, uh, flipping is, is, I mean, until the virus hit, flipping was super hot. It was a, you know, it was really tough to find good deals because the competition was extreme. Um, if you go on the MLS with your realtor and you, you know, find 10 houses that, you know, need work and you plan on buying it, fixing it and selling it, um, at least nine and a half of those houses were not a deal that made money. Um, that's how tough the market was. And so, you know, you can, you can market on your own. You can try to find people that are considering selling their house, but haven't listed it yet. Um, me personally, I use social media to make sure that my social media, following knows that I'm always looking for houses in distress. Um, some of my best leads are people that are failing to pay their mortgage. Maybe they're embarrassed to tell anyone, but they see my post and they'll reach out and I look for it as a, to buy it as a short sale. Mm -hmm. And then people that have um, a relative that have passed away. Um, sometimes, you know, a grandparent passes away and leaves by a house behind that is very dated and very, you know, sometimes it's damaged and needs a bunch of work and, um, I make it really easy on them. The, when a grandparent passes away, unfortunately, most of the kids, uh, mentality is, you know, like, Hey, we just want to sell the house and get the money. So I, I give it to them and I don't pay top dollar, but I make it easy for them. Um, and those tend to be some of my better referrals. Um, so once you find the house, <clears throat> there is a huge learning curve to hiring contractors in and getting houses fixed. Um, I, uh, I guess I wish I was on one hand, I wish I was more handy. I'm not a very handy guy, but I would know, I would have saved myself some expensive lessons in the past. 
But on the other hand, by not being handy, I never tried to do the work myself. So it allows me to renovate five houses at a time because I'm not trying to do it myself. And I have the mentality okay. that I want to hire everything out. So it's a blessing and a curse. Um, um, so, so it's not like you have you have in-house maintenance or anything. It's you're just hiring a land, hiring contractors like anyone else would hire a contractor. It's just hopefully better ones. So pretty much, I have um, all of my contractors are 1099 subs. They are all able to work for other people. Um, a handful of them don't just because they don't have to because I have enough work to keep them busy all the time. So. Um, there's only a handful of those, though. Um, all of my tradesmen, of course, work for other people. All of my plumbers, HVAC guys, electricians, uh, roofers, they all work for other people as well. But you're not getting like wholesale rates from them. Um, I do get, I do get probably better rates because I give a lot of work out. Um, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So if you know, if a if a contractor was going to charge someone fifty bucks an hour um, to work, you know, I might get them at thirty-five, something like that. Mm -hmm. And especially if I have work that can be done over time. So someone can fit in if they pick up a more expensive job and they can, oh, yeah, nice. they can squeeze it in. The flexibility is valuable to a contractor who is trying mm -hmm. to squeeze in a more expensive job. And if I have the ability, I can allow that to happen um, because sometimes my contractor has to, you know, stop for a minute while the sheet rocker does the sheet rock inside and he can't really do anything. So he takes that week off and goes and does a higher paying job and then he can come back after and his work is waiting for him. So having that kind of flexibility is valuable to those guys. So it sounds like some of what you're doing is providing value in different ways, like to the, the family whose whose parent died and leaves a the house, they're much more worried about the aggravation than the money. They'd rather sell it for 20% less, but be able to sign a piece of paper and walk away than having to renovate it and tour it. And which, especially I imagine emotionally, you know, if, if your, your mother dies and you have to keep going back into the house over and over and over again to sell it, um, you'd be willing to, to forego a cup, you know, a few tens of thousand dollars just to for that convenience. It seems like you provide a good service in in being the person who can just kind of take care of that. Or if someone's upside down to mortgage, you can you know, take care of helping them out in that way. So absolutely, by making it easy on them, I call it making it easy on them. Um, I'll pay you fast. I'll close when you're ready. I let them leave everything behind in the house that they don't want. So a lot of people that buy a house, they want it broom swept condition is the common term. Mm -hmm. And they want it empty. I mean, I've bought houses that have like three dumpsters worth of stuff in them. Um, and I, I tell them, you can leave it here. I mean, that's a that's a real burden to, yep. um, you know, the uh, family that has inherited a house that has like shag carpet and a leaking roof and rotting porches. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't want to do all this stuff. They would just like to put it behind them, get a check, go back to their jobs. And that's what I do for them. And um, I actually have a great example of that. Um, I got referred someone off of Facebook. So one of my Facebook friends had a coworker who the mother, uh, the way it was structured is a little funny. The father uh, passed away a long time ago and he left the house 50% to his wife and 50% split among three kids. So a little bit odd. Yep. The mother um, got sick and she was still alive, but she went to a home and she was on Title 19. So Title 19 means that they're going to take your assets and use it to cover your care. Um, when you're in a home. So 50% of the house was lost to the state or the proceeds of it. And there's three kids. And this house wasn't that nice. It was in Waterbury where the, you know, the market tops out pretty low. And so they, uh, they try to sell it. And, you know, the house isn't selling. The, it's just not a nice house. And it wasn't that exciting. And I'm not even excited about it because it's Waterbury. But it came time where it was like uh, it was going to be 
winter time. It was like October. And so someone has to put oil in the oil tank. And two of the kids don't have the financial ability. And the third one says, like, I don't want to. And he wasn't well off either. He just he had enough, but he didn't want to. And so they were starting to uh, they were getting to the point where they were like, you know, listen, we don't even care. We just want to get rid of this house. And so I made them a very low offer. If I remember, it was about 50 percent of what they were asking. It was half. And it was split three ways among three kids who didn't really care. They both got a few bucks and they walked away and they never had to put oil in the oil tank because that was actually a fight in their family about who's going to heat the house so the pipes don't freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mother was getting nothing. So that's an example of, you know, um, I got them out of their spot where they were stuck. Um, I think you called it providing value. And I mm-hmm. hope I did. Um, they were very happy to give it to me and I was very happy to get it for that price. Um, even uh courthouse in Waterbury was worth, I think it was like 30 grand I got it for. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a good acquisition for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something a lot of people don't realize it's not all about the money. It's about other factors. I, I find the realtors I talk to too, they don't, when they're talking about like, I'll get you top dollar for your house. Like most people would rather find out they can do it in half as many hours with someone who wants to screw up the paperwork than top dollar. They want you know, the, that's the trust. Great, that's a great point. Um, money is not everything money money is most of it for most people um but another example um there was a property with an elderly woman and i went to go see it she'd listed it um she couldn't live on her own anymore she was going to have to move out um and she had been there 50 plus years and the house was you know a little rough and so i met her there and there was more than one offer so there was a multiple offer situation and i knew i wasn't the highest offer and so i asked her um when you sell your house, where are you going to go? And she says, well, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought of that yet. And I said, would it be helpful if you got to stay here for six months afterwards? Um, so you can, you know, get your things in order and make sure that you, you know, have enough time to plan. And she goes, oh, well actually, yeah, that would be great. And so she took my offer because she wanted six months of time and she got a lot less money, but she was older and she didn't, she didn't care about the money so much. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure it mattered, but the time, the six months was actually much more important to her. And unfortunately she actually passed away in that house. She never left. Oh, wow. Yeah. But that's also good. She didn't have to spend her last six months, you know, scrambling from, from a spot yeah. to spot. She could stay in that house for those last few months. So that's, that's a good thing you did. Yeah. I think she was 87. And um, I mean, yeah, spending the last few months of your life trying to move would be a very stressful thing for her. I mean, moving is stressful for anybody. Mm-hmm. But for her, it would have been exceptionally so. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time. But uh, so do you have any final comments, especially like words of advice for someone, uh, say, you know, your your 25-year-old self um, today trying to get into business and and get out of the uh, the, fi- the nine-to-five life? Uh, so if I, if I could talk to my 25-year-old self, that's a good question. No one's asked it to me in that way before. Um, Again, one of the larger regrets in my entire life is not seeking out a mentor or at least training. Um, you know, sometimes it might be a little harder to get a mentor because if you if you are experienced, you know, a lot of guys that are brand new will ask you and it's a lot of time. Um, but an organization like CTREA, Connecticut Real Estate Investors Association, is great for training. You'll you'll learn a lot of things um, that will help you answer the easy questions. Um, Figuring out how you're going to pay for a deal is really important. Identifying if you have a, a family member or a friend or someone that you could possibly do a private lending deal with. Um, it's a great source of money. 
um, to fund your first deal. And everyone knows someone with money. I don't care who you are. Um, it can be your doctor, your dentist, your accountant, your lawyer, you know, someone that you, someone that owns the corner store that you've been going to for years, um, the local restaurant that you're, you're a regular at. Um, everyone knows someone. It's just, it's a, it's a skill to be able to tell them that like, I am going to borrow this money and I will not fail you. And this is how you are safe and protected. Um, and you're not over leveraged and, you know, being able to use private money is, is huge. Um, I would also tell myself, um, don't be afraid to spend a few bucks on education. Um, that is way cheaper than learning the hard way. Um, <laughs> you're going to spend a few bucks on education one way or the other. Yeah. My, the cost of my education was extreme on those first four houses. I think I lost like $250,000. And so, you know, I was a kid. I, I, only, I only had like at the most, maybe I had like 20 grand saved up. So yeah. you know, what do you do when you lose 250,000 and you have 20 grand? And the answer is foreclosure, short sale, short sale modification. That's wow. the answer. Um, that was, uh, you know, quite the setback. Um, take good care of your credit. I was already there, but a lot of kids don't take care of their credit. They don't understand it. It's really important. Um, you know, I guess that's that's most of what springs to mind. Just, uh, you know, I'm, just I'm glad you made that point. I'm really glad you made that point about everyone knows someone with money. I think a lot of people might hear this and be like, well, yeah, but a poor kid in Waterbury can't do what you did because their father doesn't have money. And, um, you know, if you're living in the Bronx, you can't do this. But but you're right. Everyone knows someone if they've if they're gutsy enough to to ask their doctor or their dentist or or that that one guy they know if they can approach him and say, hey, listen, here's what I want to do. I think you want to do it with me. Then uh, there's there's always one rickety ladder up out of where you are if you can find it in the world of the climate everyone in america knows people with money they just haven't asked them i mean it can be a you know it, uh when it comes to family members i mean people that have worked in the same job for 20 years and have their you know iras or pensions or they just live below their means you know those are commonly people that are, are savers that that generation was a generation of people that saved money yep. um you know when when i am my grandparents age that'll be the opposite we we do not have a saving generation and the reason is low interest rates low interest rates mm -hmm. makes people not be rewarded for saving so people don't save any money because you put it in the bank and it you actually have less buying power every day it gets inflated away um you know we're just not savers and uh you know everything from you know minimum wage to the wealth gap and all those other arguments make it also difficult to save mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a, a lot of great information, and I, and I really like having something. Frankly, I have an episode I can point to and be like, hey, if you're getting started, listen to this one because this is the one where you can learn a lot. So thank you very much for all your wisdom. Thank you for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure. David's story is the classic American entrepreneur's journey. When we talk about the American dream of building yourself up, it is so important to realize what it is and what it is not. It is absolutely true that anyone in America who has the grit and gumption to leap at every opportunity, to get back up every time they get knocked down, and to keep pushing forward, anyone who can do that can succeed in America. That's the amazing thing about our country. But for many people, they are taught from a young age that they should play it safe, that the American dream is not for them. These good things happen to other people. Someone who had taken those lessons to heart might have tried to buy a few houses, lost money, and seen it as evidence that the naysayers were right. That is when people give up and become disillusioned. As Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or you believe you cannot, 
You are correct. David's story shows that the path to success is long, gritty, and unglamorous. It took many years and many setbacks before he reached a point that one might consider successful. Most overnight successes spent 10 to 20 years getting to that overnight success point. But you never fail as long as you get up more times than you fall down. I love these kinds of stories, and if you know an entrepreneur with an inspiring story, I'd be much obliged if you could introduce them to me so I can share their story on the show. Email me at michael at guywhoknowsaguy.com. The Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast is produced and hosted by Michael Whitehouse. That's me. Our theme song is composed by Patrick Howard of Four Unicorns Design. Other music and sound effects are from Benjamin Harvey Design by way of freesound.org and bensound.com. Special thanks to Pat Helmers of Habanero Media for all the great advice he gave me on relaunching the show. Find me on the web at www.guywhoknowsaguy.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. You can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash theguywhoknowsaguy. Please share links to the show with your friends that you think would enjoy it. This is Michael Whitehouse, the guy who knows a guy, reminding you that it's not what you know, it's who you know, and how much you're willing to help them. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect, jv-connect.com. That's jv-connect.com, December 12th and 13th, 2023. We'll see you there.